Hello and welcome to How to Start Up, a podcast for anyone starting a company. This is a collection of conversations with people who have all successfully started, run and even sold their own companies, sharing not only professional but personal experiences on what we should be doing now, next or never. Hosted by me, Juliet Fallowfield, founder of PR consultancy for startups, Fallowfield and Mason. In this episode, we hear from James Pringle, founder of Pringle Capital, which has grown to become one of the UK's most active angel networks. The Pringle Network has previously led raises in e-commerce, fintech and augmented reality startups, with James having become a leading figure within the UK tech space. We discover James's advice for startups seeking investment from angel networks, his own experiences of launching his businesses and the challenges he has overcome in his own entrepreneurial journey. Hi James, thank you so much for joining How to Start Up today. It would be great if you could start with a brief introduction as to who you are and a bit about your company. Thanks very much for having me. So yeah, I'm James Pringle and I've been working in tech startups for about 12 years. My first job was at a VC-backed company where we went through Seed Camp, which was a great experience very early in my career. And then in 2015, I founded a business called Suggestive, which again was VC-backed and we were acquired in 2019. And then I set up Pringle Capital, which is one of the UK's largest angel networks, and that's still very active and operating. We're just in the process of launching a new venture fund called Goldsmith Ventures. So I spend most of my time working on that at the moment. And what was it that made you want to start your own company? Well, I started my very first company as a student, and there were a few triggers for why that happened. The first of which was that I had glandular fever in my A-level year. And so I didn't really get very good results. And although through retakes and everything, I did get into university, when it came to applying for graduate schemes, I was very unsuccessful. So I had to kind of start looking at what else I might do in my career. And the tech world just seemed very exciting. And I thought, well, maybe I'll be a tech founder one day. And the only way I'm going to be a good tech founder is probably by starting. So the first idea that came to me was around booking live comedy events through your mobile back in 2009, 2010. Very soon after the iPhone had launched, the App Store was still pretty new. We launched Laugh Louder, which was, as I say, an app that you could book live comedy events. When I graduated, I decided to go and work for someone that was a bit further ahead, had raised money, had a really great product. That's kind of how I got into it all. Given that you have so much interaction with new founders, do you think it's born in them? Is it in their blood or is it something that they can come to later on in their career? Yeah, so I think there are some people who are a bit like me. I'm probably not a natural founder, but I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I had to get good at it somehow. And the only way was through sort of trial and error and hard moments and practice and things like that. I think there are others that are naturally just very entrepreneurial and they wouldn't think of doing anything else, really. I don't think there's a a right way or a wrong way. I think some people sometimes stumble into their opportunity. They just notice a problem and they just start working on it. And before they know it, they're kind of running a successful business. And others, it's much more of a labor of love where they're really looking for that opportunity. And my advice to people would be, You've got to really want to do it. It's hard, but it's incredibly rewarding. And if the energy and enthusiasm 
is there to do it, then definitely go and do it. You you won't regret starting a business. What did you do first when you started your business? So I did things like trademarked our name, spent too long building the website, that registered straight away. You know, I made a ton of mistakes. The second time around, it was very much about team product sales. So I got a technical co-founder in, we started coding on the product straight away. And actually within about six weeks, we'd landed our biggest potential enterprise client, our kind of dream client that we thought we might not get for two or three years, we got straight away. So I think I was scrambling to register a business and get a bank account whilst they were sort of signing up and starting to use our product and wanting to pay us. It was a completely different sort of mentality and mind shift, you know, sort of deferring any of the administrative stuff for as long as possible. And I think that's what I've done with my sort of funds and my angel network as well as we don't try to overcomplicate. We focus on the core value proposition that we're trying to deliver and everything is geared towards that. And in circumstances where we need to bring in some more process or do something on an administrative side or look at exploring a new opportunity because it's so glaringly obvious that we should, then we'll do those things. But otherwise, we like to stay very focused. And I think in the early stages, that's really important. And actually, you can get really far in just a few months if you stay very focused on product sales and team. Ultimately, those are the only things that matter in the first kind of couple of years. And a lot of previous guests have talked about the weight of responsibility that arrives when starting your own company. And what you said earlier that you have to really want to do it because you are still going to get good days and bad days with any job. Is there anything you could expand on this from your point of view regarding responsibility? Yeah, so it is a really big responsibility. However, one thing I would say is that I think people do get a bit scared of what that might look like. So dealing with HMRC and tax returns and things like that, things that you probably haven't done if you've just been a student or working a normal job or things like that. So those things aren't actually that scary. Like it's very rare that someone gets into trouble for missing something because they do guide you through it. You receive a letter through the post from HMRC telling you exactly what to do. And it's not as scary as it seems. So from an operational standpoint, I think it's a good message to send to people that you don't need to worry too much about that. And it's getting easier and easier and easier with access to information online and tech platforms, SaaS, things like that. It's getting easier to operate your business and trying to support yourself with others around you that will understand the frustrations, but will then also celebrate wins. Because funnily, a lot of people's network don't celebrate their wins. You know, we we celebrate things like student debt and mortgages and things like that, which is really weird. And then we don't celebrate when people start a business or land their first client. And actually, you do want to try and surround yourself with people that will celebrate even the smallest win with you, whether it's just a good email that makes your day a bit better, and you want to tell someone about it, you're not expecting them to go, well, it's the cash in the bank account, which is sort of the advice you probably get from, you know, your parents or your partner or whoever, but just someone who goes, that's great. That's so exciting. And it builds momentum and it keeps the positivity levels high so that you can deal with the harder, lower energy moments where client is saying this part of your product just doesn't work or 
you haven't delivered what you said you were going to do. And you've got to really look within and see what's going wrong and how you're going to fix it. What was the best piece of advice that you were given when you started out? And does it still hold true? One of the best bits of advice I've ever had is if you've got a really important meeting, never go into that meeting with something that's going to surprise anyone because you end up losing control of the meeting with either a really good bit of news or a bad bit of news that people within that meeting don't already know. So ahead of meetings like that, call everyone who's going to be there and just go, hey, Dave, can I have a quick call with you to just talk about what we're going to discuss on Friday? Um, Basically, our biggest client is complaining about this thing. But you know, we're working on it. And we think we're going to have a solution within the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about it at the board meeting, but I just wanted to let you know so it didn't come as a shock. Stuff like that honestly saves you so much headache because otherwise you will lose control of the meeting. You end up having a terrible weekend trying to sort of pick up the pieces from all the board members or whoever it is that is feeling stressed that they didn't know what was going on. And I have taken that methodology into lots of things other than board meetings so it's it's a really useful thing to think about is trying not to shock people in the moment they will react in a way that is not productive for what you're trying to get an outcome from what was the most surprising thing that you've learned about yourself I'm still learning a lot about managing people. When I was younger, I always played in sports teams and I've always been a very teamy person and probably misguidedly thought, oh, I'll be good at managing people because I love being part of a team and like leading people and things like that. And then in the early days of being a founder, I just made so many mistakes. Sometimes I was too harsh. Sometimes I was too soft. A lot of the time I was really bad at communicating. And it's so different being a sole founder with an idea to then bringing on a co-founder, hiring your first team, making sure that your co-founder is also happy with the team that you're hiring, bringing on a board. And actually, I just wasn't that good at communication, management, leadership, any of those things. And they are soft skills that you can learn and they take time to develop and being aware of that and really trying to get it right without overcompensating and being too soft that I've definitely done that as well where I've tried to sort of be friends with everyone and that doesn't work so I'd say that was probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned. What advice would you give new founders who are seeking investment in their businesses and this is quite a big question I completely appreciate that is there anything that they should start to think about ahead of when they might think they need to think about? Putting together a 12 slide deck for any business, whether you're raising money or not raising money, is a pretty useful process to go through and circulating it with friends, family, people that you respect, people in the industry, potential clients, like getting a real grip of problem, solution, product, market size, competition, all those types of things, team, fundraising, financials, business model. Those are the sorts of things that you need to put into a pitch deck. So always start with that. And it's an iterative process. You'll look back on your first deck and be embarrassed a bit like you should probably look back at your first product and be a bit embarrassed. But it's good to build it and get it out there and start talking about how people are perceiving your business. Does the business model work? All those types of things. So start with a pitch deck. But then when it comes to fundraising, the one thing I would really recommend anyone who's maybe struggling with fundraising do is think about The deck is something that books a meeting, not secures an investment. It's there to book a meeting and often less is more. So cut it down. 
I've just helped a company cut their deck down from 29 slides to six slides. And then once you've had a meeting, there is a clear follow-up, which is what is known as a data room, which is basically a Google Drive or a Dropbox that has all the files that an investor would need to see to make an informed decision on investing. And that will include your certificate of incorporation, your EIS advanced assurance certificate, your cap table, your financials, your screenshots of your products, any press releases that you've had, all those sorts of things. Sometimes people add an FAQ or a video of them talking about the business or press coverage is a really good one. It's often a really great thing for investors to actually read about the business in the public domain. And it's a really natural thing to follow up with. Often investors will say, well, I want to see the financials. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. They're included in the data room where there's actually lots of more interesting information about the business. So if you get your deck right, it will convert to meetings. If you practice enough pitches, you will convert enough people that they'll say, yeah, I'm interested to see the data room. And then your data room is pretty basic. If you just Google what to include in the data room, there's a couple of really good Medium articles that will tell you. So get those three things right, and you've got a really good chance of raising a round. In terms of the sectors that Pringle Capital work within, which, in your opinion, is currently the least disrupted sector? So I would say that there is a lot of opportunity to do really amazing things within agriculture. We hear a lot about finance, property, insurance, health, all these large markets which are getting disrupted. And there is a lot of money to be raised in those markets. There's a lot of money to be made in those markets. And the UK has had a lot of success within them as well, which is great. You know, I think with increasing amounts of capital flowing into impact investment, and a lot of the impact businesses out there are not necessarily shifting the needle. When you look at the impact of agriculture, it plays part of all of our lives, really. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. But I think it There's a lot of work to be done to understand scalable business models within it. And is there any last piece of advice that you'd want to impart to a new founder? Anything at all? Speak to more people, whether it's clients, potential hires, potential investors. The worst that can happen is that they don't reply. But if you reach out and ask people questions, short, sharp, What do you think of this? What metrics should I be measuring between now and my next funding round? I would just put more irons in the fire. It will always help. You'll always be surprised at how much people are willing to give and how much interest that can generate around your business. So I definitely do that whilst also staying focused on product and sales. Thank you, James, so much for your time. I really appreciated it and everything I've learned today. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. And if anyone wants to get in touch, just reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's been great to hear from James about his own entrepreneurial journey and some of the things to watch out for, and also how to present your business to investors. If you'd like to contact James, you'll find all of his details in the show notes, along with a recap of the advice he has so kindly shared. Thank you for listening to How to Start Up. I hope these conversations offer you some confidence, encouragement and reassurance that you're on the right track. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it will really help other people starting a company discover it.